Thank you very much. I am I'm going to be reading uh, the passage we're going to be preaching from this morning, Ecclesiastes 7, 1 through 4. I'm reading from the ESV. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. Let me begin by telling you a tale of two birds, Cookie and Sunny. Now, Cookie, uh, we had that bird first. This is a true story. Uh, that bird, it was a parakeet, just a simple run-of-the-mill parakeet you get at the pet store, blue and green and yellow. And uh, Cookie was, I'm just going to say, the perfect pet, the perfect bird. Friendly, outgoing, loving, fun. Cookie would come out of the cage and hop around with us and jump on our shoulder and tickle our ear and eat food from our hands, jump up on our fingers and do the little, you know, the perch climb. Cookie was an awesome pet. We'd buy toys and snacks for him. After having Cookie and developing a very close attachment to that bird, Cookie started to get sick, uh, some kind of respiratory infection. And I did what a good, loving pet owner should do. I forked over 100 bucks and brought Cookie to the vet. And the vet, you know examined the bird, I don't know how you do that, but decided that it needed these particular drops, and we diligently gave the bird these drops, and it, it didn't work. Uh, slowly but surely, Cookie got worse and worse, and eventually died. One morning before school took its last breath, and my kids lost it. They were devastated. A lot of tears were shed over Cookie. By the time the kids got home from school that afternoon, I was prepared with a funeral. Uh, we gently placed Cookie in a, in a, a shoebox, well padded, and we, we lowered him lovingly into a hole in the ground beneath our fig tree, and I said a little prayer that I got off the internet. <laughs> God bless the Anglicans, they got a prayer for everything. We interred the precious little body of that precious little bird in the earth and marked it with a stone so that cookie would be remembered. But we had this cage, and we had all this food left over and all of the, the effects that you need for a, a pet bird, so I thought, you know what, let's, let's go get a replacement. So I went to the pet store, and we found another or, uh, blue and green and yellow bird that looked kind of like cookie, and we brought him home, and we named him Sonny, and he did not live up to his name. <laughs> on the spectrum of personalities, if Cookie was perfect, Sonny was on the total opposite end of the spectrum, okay? He was unfriendly, mean, grumpy. We did everything you're supposed to do, everything we did for Cookie to tame him and, and get him used to us, and he was having none of it. You put your finger in the cage, he bite it. 
You know, Cookie used to, used to jump down at the opening of the cage when we'd come close because he knew he was going to come out and he was going to spend time with us. Not Sonny. Sonny found the geometric center of the cage and perched himself there and looked at us suspiciously with disdain. He hated us. And uh, we didn't care much for him either. Over the course of a couple years, we put up with each other. We never developed any kind of emotional attachment to that bird. And after a couple of years of this, uh, we were sitting as a family at the dinner table, and you know, the bird cage was behind me, kind of in this, in this window well area. And I think it was my daughter, or one of my sons, looks over and says, where's Sonny? And I look back there, and there's Sonny the bottom of the cage, feet in the air like a frozen turkey. And I looked back there and I said, oh, oh Sonny died. We just <laughs> continued with our meal. We cleared the table and we stacked the dishes in the dishwasher and I grabbed a paper towel and wrapped Sonny up and disposed of him. <laughs> no funeral, no shoebox, no plot in the ground next to Cookie, no Anglican prayer, nothing disposal. The moral of the story is the, the point of the passage that we're going to walk through, and that is really simple. Be like Cookie, not like Sonny. Be like Cookie, not like Sonny. Live your life in such a way that you leave behind a good reputation, that people are actually sad when you're gone, with no regrets. When your day finally comes, and it's going to come for all of us, uh, you don't want people to just sort of shrug their shoulders when they find out you've passed on. Instead, live in light of a lasting legacy. Live in light of a lasting legacy. So turn with me, if you haven't already, to Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Ecclesiastes written by Solomon, son of David, as he's pursuing uh, wisdom and folly and trying to make sense of this thing called life under the sun. He pens these words. And they're, they're very difficult words in some ways, but very encouraging in, in others. So the way I outline this, uh, verse 1a, the first line, the value of a good reputation. And then the rest of that verse through to the end, verse 4, the value of sobering settings. And then we'll talk about a few uh, applications. So verse 1 begins with this phrase, a good name. A good name is better than precious ointment. What does that mean, a good name? Does it mean literally a good name as opposed to a bad name? Like uh, Michael, that's a good name. Christopher, that's a good name. Stephanie, that's a good name. And you know, when we, before we had kids, when, when my wife was pregnant, our first, first child, we decided we weren't going to find out if it was a boy or a girl. We wanted to be surprised. With child two and three, we wised up. But we, we decided, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll be a surprise. So you have to have two names picked out when you do that. And we knew that if it was going to be a girl, it was going to be Sophie. It's a good name. It's gentle. It means wisdom. And if it was a boy, Reuben. Yeah, it's okay to laugh because we had a girl. <laughs> and by the time we had my son, my first son who's still, who's actually here, uh, we decided not to name our children after sandwiches. So uh, Reuben, we never had. Now, if your name is Reuben, it's a, good, it's a good name, all right? It's a biblical name. It's a biblical name. It means, has deep, profound meaning. It means, look, a son. That's what it means. 
I didn't see that coming. So no, no, that's not what a good name means. It's, a, it's an idiom. We actually have the same idiom today in English. It's like, don't do that. If you do that, it's going to give you a bad name. What does that mean? A reputation. It means a good reputation is better than precious ointment. So think about this. If, you, if I utter certain names, figures of people throughout history, you're instantly going to kind of sum up, average out their life, and they're going to either have a good reputation or a bad reputation, right? It's sort of like the, the good things they did, not just the number of good things they did, but the kinds of things they did are going to either outweigh the bad things, and you have a generally positive attitude toward them, or negative. Let me give you some names, and you'll be doing this, right? You'll be thinking, yeah, good, yeah, bad. Shakespeare. Lincoln. Darwin. Beethoven. Churchill. Hitler, Nixon, Reagan. You know, the hometown where I grew up, uh, we had a, a family in town. I went to school with one of the kids. Last name, Hitner, H-I-T-N-E-R. My mom one time, I don't know if this is true, but my mom said, you know, before World War II, their name wasn't Hitner. <laughs> they conveniently changed that name after World War II. Because why? It was a bad name, a bad reputation. You know, so the way per, a person lives their life the things they do, good or bad, maybe it's not fair, but we, we average it out and you get either a good or a bad reputation. And uh, if it out, good outweighs the, the bad, good reputation, bad outweighs the good, you know how it works. You can do the math. Scripture says a good name, a good reputation is better than precious ointment. Your reputation, in other words, is priceless. It matters. As goes your reputation, especially your reputation as a Christ follower, as a Christian. That's really important. Because you're bearing the name of Christ and you're representing him. Now, the math is no good and it's not fair that some unbeliever or somebody on the outside or your own children, your relatives, are going to look at you as someone who bears the name of Christ, who claims to believe in salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, that Christ died for your sins and rose from the dead. And by believing in him, you have life in his name. You bear this name of Christ and they're going to look at what you do and see this and that and those bad things. And if you're not living in a life, a life that's worthy of the calling by which you've been called, they're going to take you as a Christian, Christian, and they're going to project that on all Christians. That's not fair, but they're going to do it. And they're going to take this, this general attitude of reputations of Christians, and they're going to apply that back to Christ. So especially for us who bear the name of Christ, this question of the reputation is really important. Everything we say or do affects our names. It affects our reputation. To quote the 1983 song of the year, every breath you take, every move you make, every bond you break, every step you take, they'll be watching you. They're watching you. Every Facebook post, even the ones you just share, Every tweet, every passing comment, every roll of the eyes, every grocery store purchase, every lane change, they're going to be watching you. Now, obviously, I, I want to just clarify, you can take this to an extreme. 
and worry about what everybody's thinking. Look, there are some people I really don't care what they think about me. There are certain circles of people, look, the more you live like Christ, the worse they're going to think about you. That's just the, the world we're in. I'm not talking about those people. I'm not talking about pleasing everybody. You don't want to be a people pleaser in that sense, where you're just constantly changing who you are to please people around you. I'm talking about being a Christ pleaser. He's the one whose uh, opinion matters. And if we are living in a way that is pleasing to Christ, we're going to have a good reputation where it actually matters. Right? So back to verse 1. A good name is better than precious ointment. What is precious ointment? It's, in the ancient world, it's a costly perfume. Uh, in the ancient world, such scented ointments, they were luxuries. They were reserved for special circumstances, special occasions, special guests, special people. They weren't... Let me, let me make this clear. You're in Walmart a week before Christmas, and you see stacked one box upon another of an assortment of five perfumes for $19.99. We're not talking about that stuff. I'm talking about the stuff, the perfumes that have their own stores. Precious, priceless. Right? You get the picture. It's what uh, Proverbs 22.1 says. Same idea. A good name, a good reputation, is to be more desired than great wealth. Favor is better than silver and gold. It's priceless. You can't put a price tag on it. Philip Ryken sums up this, this first line really well. He says, In the dusty communities of biblical times, scented oils and other fragrances were valuable commodities. Yet having a name that people admire for integrity is even more valuable. With every comment we make and every action we take, we either build up or tear down our reputation. This is really especially easy in the age of the internet and social media. Uh, rule number one nowadays in the 21st century, don't do anything in public or private that you're not ready to have all over the internet. Okay? You can ruin your reputation just like that in just a second. So I want you to think for just a moment about your own reputation. If somebody were to describe you with just one word, what might that be? What kinds of words are going to pop into their head? Are they going to think of you as uh, generous or stingy? Are they going to think of you as uh, hateful, uh, loving or hateful? As joyful or kind of a downer? As pessimistic or optimistic? Are they going to think you as a, of you as a person of integrity or a person who just can't be trusted? Are they going to think of you as dependable or unreal? In other words, are they going to think of you in terms of the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self. Or are they going to think of you as a person who indulges the deeds of the flesh? That's what we're talking about. And however they think of you, that's your reputation. And at some point, we're going to be stuck with it permanently. Verse 1, a good name is better than precious ointment. And now we're transitioning to that second part, the value of sobering settings. He says, a good name is better than precious ointment and the day of death than the day of birth. The day of your death is better than the day of the... What? How in the world 
is the day of my death better than the day I was born? So a lot of people get this really wrong. They'll think, they, they take this verse and a couple of others we'll just glance at here in a moment and say, see, death is actually good. Yay, death, it's our friend, it's our bestie. Death is wonderful. Oh, I can't wait to die because it's better than even being born. Scripture says it itself. That's not what this verse means. Where they're going to go oftentimes is jump out of this verse and look at Philippians chapter 1, 21 through 23. For me, Paul says, to live is Christ. But to die is gain. I'm, if I'm to live on in the flesh, this will, be meaning, uh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And I don't know which to choose, but I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Now, what he doesn't say here is, death is better than being born. That's not what he's saying. He's saying you have to read it in its context. Paul is saying, look... <laughs> In light of the hardships and the pain and the suffering and the turmoil, being stoned and imprisoned and persecuted and tortured, uh, man, passing on to the presence of Christ is definitely an improvement. We do live in a world, I don't know if you've noticed, where some people are enduring such suffering, especially sickness. My father passed away a few years back, and toward the end there, uh, at that point, death was a mercy. But that doesn't make death itself objectively the good thing any more than the, the wall of flame and the burning fire that you have to run through to get to safety makes the fire good. It's the way out. Sometimes people try to glorify death by citing Psalm 116.15, which says in some translations, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Take that, put some flowers around it, and frame that and put it in your bathroom. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Really? So when, when a saint dies, the Lord says, oh, that's so precious. More, more. Is that what it means? Now, the, the, actually, the word translated precious here, it's yarak, if you're curious. It means costly. Costly. Now, something can be positively costly, like a gem. That's a costly gem. But you can also use it in terms of that was a costly war. The price was too high. In the context of the psalm, context is important, uh, in the context of many, many psalms, in the context of the whole Bible, costly in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Makes a lot more sense. That's why the psalmist prays, and many psalmists pray constantly, deliver me from death. God delights in delivering his people from death, from troubles. Ultimately, through Christ, those who are his will be delivered from death in the ultimate sense through resurrection. So death is the enemy, 1 Corinthians 15, 26. So if Ecclesiastes 7.1b doesn't mean that death itself is good, that death itself, the day we die, is going to be better than the day we were born, what does it mean? Well, I have a real novel solution to answering perplexing problems in Scripture. Context. Context. Okay? Look at the very next verse. You have to read one in light of two and two in light of one. So, a good name is better than precious ointment. The day of death is better than the day of, ver of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning, the day of death, than to go to the house of feasting, the day of birth. Hmm, 
For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will take it to heart. The day of death, day, place of mourning, day of... He's talking about funerals and birthdays. He's talking about reflecting on these things. Uh, listen, I don't know if you've noticed, but birthdays aren't, and, and, and baby showers aren't the most uh, uh, weighty moments in our lives. You know, nobody thinks about profound issues at a birthday party, generally speaking. There are probably exceptions. Birthday parties are, are characterized by feasting, verse 2. By laughter, verse 3. By mirth, verse 4. People don't take it seriously. You walk away from a baby shower, for instance, the, the, celebrating the, the day of a, of a baby's birth, and nobody... Is, has had a chance to reflect on the baby's life. You know, that baby has not had a chance to establish a, uh, his or her character, a reputation, establish a legacy. It, nobody walks away from a baby shower and says, you know that baby, Reuben? He rubs me wrong. He looks suspicious. When he cooed at me, I don't think he was sincere. He didn't even open his eyes to the whole thing. I don't like him. There's something wrong with that baby. Nobody does that, right? The baby's just starting out. And at a birthday party, you don't get the card, you know, for the birthday, and you write in, hey, happy birthday, Bob. Here are 10 things that I really wish you'd change over the next year. Uh, you don't shake hands and say, hey, Bob, uh, happy birthday. Uh, be honest, I really wish I didn't have to be here acknowledging another year of your existence. You might think that, but you don't say it, right? Instead, birthdays are feasting and laughing and mirth. And here's the point. Because of that, they're, they're superficial. They're light. How many of you were deeply, profoundly, life-changingly impacted by a birthday party? Probably not. Nobody walks away from a birthday party and thinks, golly, I really need to change my life. Or, man, I'm walking down the wrong path. I really need to fix it. Nobody does this. But a funeral? I know people. I can name names of people who walked away from a funeral and said, oh, I'm in big trouble. I need to rethink this. Right? So verse 2 then gives the reason the house of mourning, the funeral, the day of a person's death, is better than the house of feasting, the day of the baby shower, the day of the birthday party. It says, because this is the end of all mankind. At the funeral, we're all going to be faced with the reality that one day, all of us, unless the Lord comes back in our lifetime, nobody's going to escape this. All of us some point are going to be placed in a box or an urn and lowered into a hole in the ground. And on that day, the final punctuation mark on the final sentence, on the final chapters of our lives will be inscribed on the pages of time. And our book will be complete. Our story will be over. And now, just like when you finish an actual book, you can think about it, turn it around in your hand and reflect upon it. And yeah, it was a really good book. Five stars on Amazon. Or, golly, that was a horrible book. One star. I don't even know why I finished it. I was hoping it'd get better. I'd at least be able to give it two stars. Same thing with our lives. Once our life is over and the book is closed, now people are going to be able to look at that thing as a whole. 
and they're going to. Let me read you a few actual, real, one-star reviews of what many consider to be the, the worst book available on Amazon, all right? Scathing. And think about if they said these things about a person. Do you really want to be stuck with that kind of a one-star review of your life? For instance, now related to this horrible book, I am flabbergasted at how bad this book is. It has no redeeming elements whatsoever. Could you imagine if someone gave you that kind of review? I'm flabbergasted at how awful a person that person was. No redeeming elements. One star. Is this book supposed to be a joke? Who even let this book be published? This guy's life was a joke. The world would have been better had he not been born. People generally that were, were more polite than that, we don't say it. People are going to think it. One star. I have seen many horrible things in life. Munich, Guyana, the Challenger Explosion, World Trade Center. This book ranks right up there. Wow. Talk about hyperbole. Woo, that's a word picture. And you know, her life was a disaster. Her life was a tragedy. One star. Potential customers, do not let your curiosity lead you to air. Stay far, far away. Ugh, I wish I hadn't had to know him. One star. Just as no author would want uh, these kinds of scathing reviews, one-star reviews on their books, none of us should live in a way that has people uh, giving us one-star reviews at our funerals or memorial services. Look, at that time, you don't want to live in a way and to have written your story in a way that people either consciously or unconsciously, either, either in their heart or out loud, give you one-star reviews. This is why now, while our story is still being written, while you still have pages left, we need to take to heart the reality that it is going to come to an end one day. We need to live our lives in such a way that we leave behind a good reputation with no regrets. We need to live in light of a lasting legacy. Verse 3 says, sorrow is better than laughter. Now remember the context. He's talking about mourning at a funeral. That sorrow is better than the laughter and the mirth and the, and the laughing that's going on at a birthday party. Why? For by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. Hmm, that's another one of these little puzzling verses that commentators are tripping over each other trying to figure out what it means. Look, it doesn't mean that, you know, if you think you got it bad, you need to hang out with a bunch of miserable people and be like, oh, I thought I had it bad. They make me feel way better about myself. That's not what this is about. That can sometimes be true, where you complain about yourself until you, you know, realize there are many, many people have it worse off. But that's not what this verse is about. Uh, a better translation of the word glad here, the heart is made glad, is it's made better. It's put right. That is, as you ponder, consider, and, and serious things in life, grave things in life, that's going to do your heart good. It's going to have a healing effect. I know it may not feel like it, but it's true. Verse 4 follows that thought. It says, the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. But the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. The wise person is going to go and they're going to reflect on it. They're going to take it to heart. And they're going to become more wise. 
The fool is going to just want to party, take nothing seriously, and they're going to stay fools. That's what this means. Surrounding yourself with sobering surroundings is going to do your heart good. It's the same thought as we see in Psalm 90, verse 12, a prayer of Moses where he prays, and this should be our prayer too, teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. Think about your own life and every day that you're writing another page in that book. Number it and realize that by thinking and pondering that our hearts become wise. When we come to the terms of the fact that one day, and that day is going to be different for all of us, some sooner, some later, the last day will come. When we number our days, we'll be driven to live our lives in such a way that we, that we leave behind a, a good reputation, that we have no regrets, and that we live in light of a lasting legacy. We're, we're like Cookie rather than like Sonny. So the wise person whose pages are still being written should always ask themselves, how's my story going? Am I the, the hero of my story, or am I the villain? Um, have I done anything good? Are people actually going to miss me when I'm gone? When someone is asked to do the eulogy, the, the, the read the good words at my, at my funeral, are they going to be kind of constantly trying to avoid that responsibility? Am I going to give them good words? If there was an open mic at my memorial service, would people just sit there in silence and after a few minutes of that awkwardness, the funeral director has to come and kind of put an end to it? Or will he have to say, look, sorry, we got to get going. There's another funeral coming. You guys can't stop gushing about this person. That's what I want. I want my funeral to put the other ones behind schedule. I don't know about you, but I kind of want people to miss me when I'm gone. I want them to have good things to say, to think back on me with a smile rather than a frown. I want to be like Cookie instead of like Sonny. Now, speaking of Cookie and Sonny, I started this with Cookie and Sonny. Let me tell you another story uh, about a person we're just going to call Bonnie, Bonnie Johnson. In my teenage years, my mother was uh, involved in, in local city politics. She'd run for city council and became the, the city clerk and was on the, the city council and had to kind of organize all of the meetings for several years. That was our life. And uh, I was actually involved with a friend of mine. We would video. This was back, they used to broadcast the live, the, the uh, council meeting on TV. And so I was responsible for the camera and running that thing. Um, and so we were heavily involved, my friend and I, in the goings-on of City Hall and, and had the inside scoop on everything. Well, there was one resident of my hometown, a widow. Her name was, we're just going to call her Bonnie Johnson, not her real name. And she was a, uh, she was a piece of work. She, used to, she was famous. I actually brought this up last week. I said, hey, Mom, remember Bonnie Johnson? She's like, oh, yeah. I don't care what you say. I'm never going to change my mind. I was like, she knew that was her, her thing. Or, I don't care what, what, what it is, I'm against it. That attitude. Oh, my goodness. She showed up to every council meeting, of course. Took every opportunity to speak up, you know, louder than the council members. She didn't know what she was talking about most of the time. 
She was always on a crusade. She was rude. She was mean. She was obnoxious. And as a result, her circle of friends got smaller and smaller and smaller, and then she died. And I'm never going to forget that first council meeting after Bonnie Johnson passed away. Uh, it made a permanent mark on me because the tone in the council chambers at City Hall, it was like, it was like Narnia after the White Witches all winter but never Christmas came to an end when Aslan showed up. The tone was giddy. It was celebratory, jubilant. In fact, I even overheard, and I'm not making this up, I overheard one of the council members with a big smile on his face say to another one after the meeting was over, ding dong, the wicked witch is dead. And I thought at that moment, I hope that doesn't happen to me. I hope people aren't celebrating that I'm gone once I die. I want to be missed. And that means I need to live my life now in such a way that I leave behind a good reputation with no regrets to live my life in light of a lasting legacy. So where does it leave us? Let me give you a few points of application, reflection on these very important verses. Number one, how do we, leave, how do we live in light of a lasting legacy? First, learn lessons from those who have gone before you. You know, you can learn lessons two ways, the hard way and the easy way. Okay, so many people want to learn the hard way, make their own mistakes. Some of those can harm you and others permanently. Or you can do what Solomon urges us to do, and that is to learn lessons from others, from the lives of others. So that means, according to Solomon, don't just attend funerals, don't just read biographies, exegete them. Observe, interpret, Apply. There are cautionary tales all over the place. Avoid these problems. But there are also examples to follow. You know, I used to work as a, as a writer for a um, Christian ministry years ago. And um, as a writer on the writing staff there, we would quote from a lot of different sources and different people and pastors and such. And... Um, Sometimes pastors and teachers, after they write some really important books, they kind of tank their reputation. So we had what we just called the list. It was a 10 pages of names, and if we wanted to quote from somebody a little out of the ordinary, and we weren't sure, we'd go to the list, and we'd check to see if they were on the list. And if they were on the list, it usually was set up like this. You had three columns. You had uh, pastor so-and-so, don't ever quote. And then the, the third column would be the reason. He committed adultery and apostatized. All right, we're not going to quote from that guy. I remember one time there was this one particular scholar who was on the list. When I read his entry, you know, I was deep into my PhD studies and hoping to one day do the thing I'm doing today, and I thought, Tolly, I want to make sure that I don't end up on this list. This guy's entry said this, Dr. So-and-so may quote, but don't endorse him as a person. And the reason... He's obnoxious. <laughs> obnoxious. Where do you go from there? Do you want someone someday to kind of summarize the story of your life with obnoxious? I don't. So first lesson, 
Learn lessons from those who've gone before you. Second, live in a way that makes it easy for your loved ones to write those eulogies. A eulogy means good words. They're the words that, you know, that people say at a, read usually at a memorial service. They're words of fond memories, praise, appreciation, funny stories. Give those loved ones words to write. Live what you want them to say. Live them now. Give them good words to write. That means when you mess up, seek forgiveness. Don't let that go on too long and let bitterness develop. Are there maybe sore spots in your life right now, people that you think about, and you're like, ooh, people you avoid, people you don't email, people you don't call, you have broken relationships? Uh, those need to be mended. You can't live a life where you're constantly producing nothing but broken relationships. If any people are coming to mind right now, take care of that. Take care of that this, today if you can. Maybe this week. Take steps toward reconciliation. Live in a way that will make it easy for loved ones to write your eulogy. And finally, help others think about their own obituaries. Yes, it's definitely more fun to, uh, you know, be in the house of feasting and laughter and mirth. I like a party and a potluck and a picnic just like the next guy. You know, food, folks, and fun. That's, there's a place for all of that. But, you know... We maybe, maybe need to readjust our definition of quality time to include, like, real quality time, where we, where we think about serious issues of life, where we talk about tough things, where we share the, the pain and the struggles that we go through. And people will learn about that. And they'll, they will adjust their lives in light of those things. That means getting involved in a men's group or a women's group where you're not just superficial, but you're going deep into the hard things of life. Shedding tears together, not just laughing together. You need to both. Read Ecclesiastes chapter 3. There's a time for everything. Read books that aren't just fluff. Biographies that, that really exegete a person's life. You learn positive and negative things. I think if we learn lessons from those who have gone before us, if we live in a way that will make it easy for our loved ones to write our eulogies, and if we help others to think about their own obituaries, their own mortality, then we'll live our lives in such a way that we'll leave behind a good reputation with no regrets, that we'll live in light of a lasting legacy, that will, that will be like Cookie, not like Sonny. Father, we thank you for your word and for the words of wisdom. They can be hard words. They can be words we want to rush through and not really think through. I pray that we will take these things to heart, that we will live our lives in such a way that we have no regrets, that we leave behind a good reputation, that we live in light of a lasting legacy. We can't do this on our own. It's impossible. Left to ourselves, we'd all have one-star reviews. So, Lord, we ask that by your Spirit, you will enable us to live Christ-honoring lives, that we will walk in the manner worthy of the calling. When we mess up, that we'll seek reconciliation and forgiveness. Help us to live our lives that we look back with no regrets and that people have good things to say about us when we're gone. And help us to encourage others to that end. We pray these things in the name of Jesus and by the power of your spirit. Amen.